The sermon scripture this morning is Acts 2, 41 through 47. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attaining the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. Good morning. As we continue in worship, I'd like to share a favorite story about the great reformer John Calvin. How at one point he came into conflict with the city leaders in the city of Geneva where he was pastoring. And in 1538, he was forced to leave and settle in Strasbourg for three years. Now Calvin was a committed expository preacher. And at the time of his departure, he was working his way verse by verse through the book of Acts. We're not sure exactly where he stopped when he had to leave Geneva, but for purposes of this story, let's assume he had gone through Acts 14.4 when he had to leave. After three years, he patched things up with the city leaders and was able to return to his pulpit in Geneva. His first Sunday back, he got up to preach and said something like, we'll continue now from Acts 14.5. In a somewhat similar fashion, I'd like to pick up from where I left off when I last preached here about a year ago. We were looking at John chapter 4, where Jesus Christ himself is teaching on the subject of worship. Now, Pastor Jim took us to this chapter several weeks ago and looked at it from the perspective of evangelism, but I'd like us to return now to the subject of worship and go back to John 4 as our starting point this morning. In John 4, you'll remember Jesus is in conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, and she poses to Jesus what is, in essence, a question about worship. She says in verse 20, our fathers, the Samaritans, worshiped on this mountain, that is Mount Gerizim in Samaria, but you, you Jews, that is, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people are to worship. We saw that the woman is basically asking, which is right, Samaritan worship on Mount Gerizim or Jewish worship in Jerusalem? And Jesus, as he so often does, answers the question in a surprising way. He says in verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And in verses 23 and 24, he adds, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is saying, I'm here, and I'm changing the rules about worship. No longer is the focus to be where or when you worship, 
but how you worship. True worship will have to be in spirit and truth. We saw in verse 24, God is spirit. He's a spiritual being. And as a spiritual being, he must be approached on a spiritual level. And so true worship must come from the inside out, from the heart. It must be genuine and sincere from the inside out. Not like many of the Jewish leaders that Jesus often criticized for the external, purely external nature of their worship. It must be worship in spirit from the inside out. But true worship must also be worship in truth. That is, it must be according to God's revelation. The Samaritans had rejected most of God's truth and set up their own worship system on Mount Gerizim. But worship in truth means worshiping God's way according to his own instructions. And ultimately, of course, that means coming through Jesus Christ, who is the truth. So true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Jesus takes the emphasis off time and place, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem, and emphasizes instead the true reality of worship as being in spirit and truth. We also noted last time in verse 23 that the Father is seeking worshipers. That's what he wants first and foremost from every one of us. No matter how else he may gift us or develop us or deploy us in his service, what must always come first is that vertical relationship with him, a relationship of worship. Because worshipers is what the Father is seeking. So those were and and the two big takeaways from Jesus' teaching on worship in John 4. Worship must be in spirit that is genuine, sincere, and from the heart, and according to God's revelation and truth. And it is worship that the Father is seeking above all from us. Now we want to build on that foundation as we turn to the writings of Paul. Look with me now, please, at Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Romans 11 beginning with verse 33. Paul has just composed on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the greatest exposition ever written on the gospel and on God's work in human history. He has just given us 11 chapters of the most profound theology ever. And now here in Romans 11:33, we see that Paul sort of can't contain it any longer and he bursts forth in praise. He can't restrain himself from responding in wonder to the tremendous truth God has just enabled him to write. Paul the theologian becomes Paul the worshiper. And so he writes, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him? that he might be repaid? Implied answer, no one, of course. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. This is Paul's ecstatic response of worship to the truths he has just expounded in chapters one through 11. And this is a reminder to us 
that as we study the scriptures on our own in groups in Sunday school in this service, we need to be sure to always make room and time to respond to God in praise for the things we are learning about him from his word, as Paul did. To reflect back to him our worship in grateful acknowledgement of what we have seen of him. That's what Paul did here. As he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then we come immediately to Romans 12, where Paul makes a major pivot in his book in order to spend the rest of the book on the application of the truths found in the first part of the letter. In Romans 12:1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The word therefore, of course, is the marker that here comes the application. Looking back on what has come before, therefore, this is what you're to do about it. And he says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. The mercies of God on our behalf is what Paul has been talking about for those 11 chapters. And now Paul adds that the appropriate response to all that God has done for us and in us through Christ, as he's been talking about, is to present our bodies, that is our whole lives, our whole selves to him as an act of worship. Paul seems here to be building on what Jesus taught in John chapter four that we've just been talking about. Paul sees that if worship is not limited to a time and a place, it must mean that it can and should take place at every time and in every place, that is, in all of life. Presenting to him our bodies, our entire lives, as a living sacrifice. This goes hand in hand with what Jesus identified as the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. Our whole bodies, our whole lives devoted to God as living sacrifices as our first and highest priority. Which Jesus also made clear when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the vertical, and all these things will be added to you. First things first. Paul hits on this idea elsewhere in his writings as well. First Corinthians 6, he says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. God has done this. Therefore, in response, glorify God in your body. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Jesus and Paul make it clear that there can never be a sacred part of our lives and a separate secular part of our lives. It all belongs to God because we have been bought by him with the price of the death of his son. As one writer put it, this does not mean that there are no longer any sacred times or places, but rather that every time and every place is sacred to the Lord. It all belongs to him, and we all belong to him. So Paul tells us in Romans 12.1, which is one of the most crucial New Testament texts on worship, that we're to present our bodies, our whole lives, as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Believers are to live a life and to walk a lifestyle of worship. All of life is meant to be lived before the Lord and unto the Lord as a grateful response of worship for all that he has done for us in Christ. John Piper puts it this way. The root of Christian living and the root of congregational praise are the same, which is why for Paul, worship simply cannot be merely or even mainly thought of in terms of Sunday services, but of all of life. His is an absolutely God-saturated vision of Christian existence. When our whole life is consumed with pursuing satisfaction in God, everything we do highlights the value and worth of God, which simply means that everything becomes worship, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do. This is the New Testament understanding of worship. Worship is not just what we do here on Sunday morning. And worship is not wholly dependent on the worship leader or the worship team, on the pastor. Don't put it all on Ken or Jim or any of the others leading up front here. It's to be part of our everyday life, a lifestyle of worship. Where we live, where we work, where we play. Worship is much more than what we do here at church. We dare not put the entire burden for our worship on the staff or on what goes on here on Sunday morning. However, I would quickly add that what we do here at church on Sunday morning is very important. Above all of our church's other activities, it's our corporate gathering here that really defines us as a local body of believers. Our identity as first evangelical church is most obvious and most compelling when we are gathered here for corporate worship. Acts 2.42 and following, which we just heard read, makes it very clear that from the very beginning of the Christian church, God's people gathered regularly, and in the words of Luke there, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread or communion and the prayers. We come together, and then we scatter out into the world, but then we come back together again. It's been compared to breathing in and breathing out. We must breathe air into our lungs, but then we need to let it out as well. A healthy human body must both inhale and exhale. So too, a healthy local church must come together, but must also then scatter into the world in between those corporate gatherings. Peter says, in 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We gather together so that as a spiritual house, as a holy priesthood, we can offer worship, that is, spiritual sacrifices, he calls them, acceptable to God through Christ. And a few verses later, in verse 9, we read, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As we just sang, out of darkness into light. We gather to proclaim his excellencies 
in worship. Eric Alexander, the great Scottish preacher who's been in this pulpit a number of times in the past, says this about the ministry of preaching, which of course is so central to our worship gatherings here. He says, preaching's great aim is to bring us to know God in order that we might become worshipers, that we might know whom we worship. Should always lead us to worship. So worship as a church, together, gathered, is important. Worship as a life and a lifestyle is important as well. And that brings us to an ongoing debate when it comes to these two levels of worship or these two sides of worship. Does our corporate gathering for worship, our weekend worship, so to speak, prepare us for our weekday worship, our week-long walk of worship? Or does our weekday walk of worship prepare us for our corporate weekend worship gathering? To which the answer is, of course, a resounding yes. They are, in fact, mutually enriching. They are in what we could call a symbiotic relationship. You'll remember, perhaps, that in nature, symbiotic relationships are where two organisms will have a mutually beneficial interaction, such as we see in these pictures. So a bee will feed on the pollen and also carry it to other blossoms and pollinate them. This bird helps to keep the antelope insect free by having a feast on the bugs that show up. These are symbiotic, mutually beneficial relationships. Weekend worship and weekday worship are also in a symbiotic relationship. First, weekend worship, what we do here, enriches our weekday worship. Our joining together in corporate worship can strengthen us, motivate us, and prepare us to walk a lifestyle of worship during the week. We come to church out of a week when we're bombarded by forces that deny the reality, the, reality, the primacy of God, and we need the encouragement that comes from gathering together and reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ. In the words of Peter again, to be reminded that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 encourages us to harvest all the benefits of our corporate gatherings. Verse 22, he says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We're invited to come into the Lord's presence together through Christ. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he is promised, who you have promised is faithful. We're invited to grow in hope by reaffirming the truths that we hold in common. 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the, is the habit of son, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We draw strength for the battle by building up one another as we come together. All this and more is ours as we gather as a congregation 
to offer our hearts and our voices to God in harmonious praise, to bask in his grace and goodness, to hear and respond to God speaking to us through his word. And thus we are fortified to go out into the world and represent him. We see a vivid example of this with King David in Psalm 63. In Psalm 63, it tells us that David is in the wilderness of Judah. This is during the time that he had to flee for his life when his son Absalom had rebelled against him and taken the kingdom from him. And at this desperate time in his life, David cries out in this psalm, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David yearns for God in the desert, in this dry and weary land where there is no water. David was in the most desperate situation he had ever faced when his very life was in great danger. However, it's been pointed out that amazingly, this psalm is one of pure praise. There's not one single petition or complaint in the entire psalm, just praise. And we should note that David is far away from Jerusalem, far from the tabernacle. He can't fulfill any of the external rituals or requirements of the Mosaic covenant system. Can't do any of it. And yet he instinctively knows that he can come personally to God in worship in this dry and weary land because he recognizes that as he says, oh God, You are my God. And note the resource that David is drawing upon at this desperate time in his life. In verse 2 he says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. He remembers what it was like to gather with God's people in the worship of the sanctuary. His roots had gone deep through corporate worship as he had experienced God's power and glory in that setting. And that helps to sustain him in this crisis and this time of worshiping alone. The public worship had given deep roots to his private worship. And so even though his very life is in danger, David can declare in verse 3 that because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. David's previous weekend worship empowered and deepened his weekday worship, even in the desert. And that's what gathered worship can do for us in the deserts we go through as well. But in this symbiotic relationship, a life and lifestyle of worship during the week will also have a tremendous impact on what happens here as we gather on Sunday. It's a two-way street. Our weekday worship will also profoundly influence our weekend worship in this place. Now, there are, of course, times in all of our lives when we'll come empty to church and God will meet us and fill us again. However, the pattern for a healthy, growing Christian is normally to come to the service out of a week of walking with and worshiping God with a heart already full of gratitude to God and love for God. 
And then we join our hearts and voices together in something that's so much more than the sum of the parts. Our weekday worship thus helps to strengthen and deepen what we experience in this corporate gathering. Our walk of worship, our lifestyle of worship, our times of private worship, all will feed into what happens here. So we're making a contribution to one another. It's not just our own little walk, but it's feeding into what happens in this place as well. As we eat or drink or whatever we do to the glory of God in our daily lives, it helps to enrich what happens here on Sunday morning. But this preparation, of course, comes not just from carrying a worship mindset through all our busy daily activities, but also through private times, quiet times of focused devotion, study, and prayer. Back to the Scottish preacher, Eric Alexander, he speaks powerfully to the importance of our private worship as a foundational preparation for corporate worship. I was going to quote him again, but it sounds so much more convincing and godly with a Scottish accent that we're going to hear from him directly. But the second thing that is equally vital is a faithful attendance on the private means of grace. Public worship, you see, is impossible except against a background of private worship. And in so many ways, the quality of our worship when we are together will be a reflection of the quality of our worship when we are alone. Because the public ministry of the word, vital as it is, is never a substitute for the private reading of it. Public waiting upon God together as his people, which is the place, as we were discovering, where God is pleased to manifest himself, is never a substitute for private waiting upon God in the secret of our own soul. And if you do not regularly bow before God in private worship and adoration, you will find it a strange thing to do so with other people on the Lord's day. It is as simple as that. This is why in the general sense, in the broad term, faithful attendance on the private means of grace is of the very essence of preparing ourselves for worship. So not only does our gathering here for public worship fortify us for our daily walk, but that walk of worship and our practice of private worship will empower and enrich our corporate worship here as well. As a final illustration of that point, I'd like to share with you a children's book, which I grew up with and perhaps you did as well. It's called Stone Soup. This is the story. Three soldiers are coming home from the war. They're tired and hungry. They see a village in the distance and they say to one another, let's go into the village and ask for some food. But the villagers see them coming and seeing how they don't have a whole lot of food for themselves, they conspire together to hide the food that they do have. So when the soldiers come asking for food, the villagers say, sorry, we don't have any. But the soldiers are not fooled, and in their shrewdness, they say, that's all right. If you'll just give us a big pot full of water and some smooth, round stones, we'll make stone soup. 
Well, the villagers wonder about this, but they comply with the request and they bring the pot and the stones. The soldiers set the pot to cooking and after a while they taste it and one of them says, this is really good, but if we just had a few potatoes, it would be so much better. And one of the villagers sheepishly says, I think I might have a couple of potatoes. And he runs off and fetches them. The soldiers cut up the potatoes and add them to the soup. Cook some more. After a while, they taste the soup again and say, this is really good. If we had just a little bit of cabbage, it would be so much better. Another villager says, I think I might have a cabbage or two. The cabbages are brought, added to the soup, some more cooking. And the same thing happens then with celery and carrots and all kinds of other things. And finally, this marvelous soup is ready. And the soldiers invite the whole village to join in with them, and they have a marvelous feast together. And the villagers are so impressed with these soldiers that they could make such a wonderful soup out of just stones. The parable for us is that the basic elements of our services here are in one sense like those stones. They're just the beginning. What makes worship at First Divan really special is when we come to worship out of a week of walking with and worshiping God with our hearts overflowing with love and gratitude to him and then join our hearts together as we each toss into this pot of worship some of that abundance. That's when corporate worship at First Divan becomes a nourishing feast for the people of God and a fragrant aroma to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these precious gatherings where we can come and hear about and sing about and pray about and rejoice in your power and your glory and all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for how you strengthen us for our walk through these times together. Thank you, though, that also in every time and every place that they are sacred times and places for you, an opportunity for worship. Thank you for reminding us that all of life is to be offered up as a living sacrifice of praise, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we're to do it for your glory. Remind us of the importance, as we've heard, of private worship, not only for our own lives, but for the good of others in this place as well as we gather together. Thank you that like David, we can seek and find you in the quiet and lonely and even hard places because your steadfast love is better than life. Bring us together, Father, and send us forth, that in both of those ways, you might empower our worship and our service to the glory of your great name. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.